Do you ever wonder, what is my purpose in life? Why am I here? What is it that God would have me do? You know, every time that a loved one dies, we, we talk about that. We talk about our loved one and how they lived their life and what was their purpose in life and what was it that motivated them while they were here on this earth. What is your purpose? What is our purpose here on this earth? Well, as we continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to find that Jesus tells us exactly what our purpose is, what it is we are called to do as his followers today. To see what I'm talking about, I would encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. It may be found on page 1029 of your Red Pew Bible. 1029 of your Red Pew Bible. I would encourage you to pull out that Red Pew Bible and keep it open throughout the message as I make reference to the text. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that you inspired Matthew to put pen to parchment to record this powerful Sermon on the Mount, a message that still resonates with our hearts today. God, I pray that as you read these familiar words that you might speak afresh and anew to us that we might hear from you, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts might be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Matthew chapter five, verses 13 to 16. Listen to God's word. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Here ends the reading of God's word. As the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You are the salt of the earth. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Notice that he says you are the salt and the light. He doesn't say you are a salt or a light. No, he tells the, the crowds listening to them that day in Galilee, and he tells us as well as we read this text as his followers that we are the salt and the light. The implication is that we have a very specific role that we are to play in the midst of God's plan of salvation, in the midst of his beautiful creation. We are called to be the salt and the light. And if we don't do our job as the salt and the light, it won't get done because we are the salt and the light. Now, what does it mean to be the salt and the light? Particularly for those listening to this message, this Sermon on the Mount in the midst of Galilee in the first century. Let's begin with salt. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? In the first century, the primary use for salt was actually the preservation of meat. 
they didn't have uh, refrigeration like we do today, the best way to keep meat from decaying is to use a lot of salt, to season the meat with salt. And what Jesus is saying to that first century crowd that just as salt is used to help prevent the decay of meat, we as the salt of the earth are intended to help prevent the moral decay of creation. We're called to help prevent the moral decay of creation, the moral decay of humanity specifically. We are called to help preserve what God originally intended when he created all of humanity. You may remember in Genesis chapter 1, we read that, uh, that both men and women were created in the very image of God. And when God looked at us, the crown of his creation, he said that we were very good. And in Genesis chapter 2, our first parents have a, a wonderful communion with God where there's no sin, there's no shame, there's no fear, there's only love. But then in Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, commit that original sin of eating the forbidden fruit. And then all of creation is corrupted with that original sin. So that we now inherit a sinful nature that left to our own, we are prone to wander from God. In fact, theologians often say that we are sinners not because we sin, but rather we sin because we are sinners. We have a, a sinful nature that, left to its own, is rebellious against what God wants. We are naturally selfish. If you don't believe me, put one toy in between two toddlers and see what will happen. They will not naturally share. We are naturally covetous. When we see someone else has something we want, we covet that. We, we break that Ten Commandment. Yes, naturally we are covetous, but as salt, as salt of the earth, as followers of Jesus, we're called to be generous. Generous as our God has been generous to us in giving us his one and only son. Yes, naturally, humanity is promiscuous. But as salt of the earth, we are called to be chaste in singleness or faithful in marriage. Yes, naturally, as John Calvin pointed out, the human heart is naturally an idol factory, chasing after the different idols of this world, whether that be money, sex, or power. But as followers of Christ... We're called to be salt. We're called to be faithful to God, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Amen? Yes, we are the salt of the earth, called to preserve God's original intention for creation, called to, well, called to make things better. Because salt doesn't just preserve, but salt actually brings out the, the beautiful tastes of a particular food. I love the way that Eugene Peterson in the message translates this verse, Matthew 5, verse 13, in the message. He says, let me tell you why you're here. This is your purpose in life. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. We're called to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. We're called to make things better. Just like just the right amount of salt can make any dish better. I found this out in the 80s when my mom was cooking green beans all the time. If you can relate to that, green beans. Uh, my mom, most moms would take green beans out of the can, which naturally have some salt saline in it, but not my mom. My mom would buy fresh green beans. And she would cut up the ends of the green beans, and then she would steam the green beans so they were still crunchy. And she started serving green beans, it seemed like at every other meal. Now, when you start eating green beans three times a week, you can get kind of tired of green beans, right? I think it was her favorite vegetable. So what we began to do as other family members, my, my sister, for instance, she hated green beans. She still hate greens, hates green beans. And what she would do is she would pour ketchup on those green beans. 
I tried that once. I didn't like it. You know, the, the, the ketchup overwhelmed the taste of the green beans. But I noticed that my dad would put just a little bit of salt on the green beans, and it made a difference. Those green beans tasted a lot better with just a little bit of salt. As followers of Christ, we're called to make things better. We're called to help prevent the moral decay of humanity. We're called to bring things back to the way they were intended to be, where there was love and joy and mercy in that original garden. We're called to be the kind of people who make things better. And if you think about the church, the history of the church, you'll see that God has been using followers of Jesus to help make the world better. I think about the abolition of slavery. How did that happen in the United States and how did that happen in England? Because Christians like William Wilberforce or Abraham Lincoln spoke up and said, it's not right for one man to enslave another. Because guided by the words of the Apostle Paul that we read in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28, where Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we are all sons and daughters of God. We're not supposed to enslave one another. We're called to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Christians like William Wilberforce or Abraham Lincoln helped abolish a slavery in England and in the United States. Think about the origination of orphanages. How did orphanages come about? Well, it's because followers of Jesus took the words of Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 14, quite literally, where Jesus says, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. In the Roman Empire in the first century, if a child was born with a deformity or was not desirable, they would cast out that child, and that child would be orphaned, trying to survive on the streets. But Christians recognized that Jesus said we should welcome children, all children. And so the orphanages were begun as Christians began to welcome children into their homes, regardless of their deformity, regardless of their circumstances. Yes, God has used the people of God, his followers of Jesus, to make the world better. Think about the origination of hospitals or hospices more recently. How did that begin? Because as followers of Jesus looked at the life of Jesus, they could see that he was the great healer. He was the great physician. And we're called to minister to the sick and the hurting and to those who are dying to offer encouragement in life, knowing that Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so hospitals and hospice care was created first by Christians. It says, followers of Jesus, we're called to make things better. And this church, First Presbyterian Church, has tried to make things better throughout its history here in Amarillo. You may remember the story in, in 1923, our own Dr. Thompson, who was the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church at the time, was having coffee with Guy Saunders in downtown Amarillo, and in 1923, he saw some orphans who were begging for food. They were poorly clothed and not well fed, and they were in, living on the streets on their own. Well, compelled by the love of Jesus, Dr. Thompson and Guy Saunders decided they were going to make a difference. And so they started the Amarillo Children's Home, a foster care center to care for kids who aren't able to be with their parents, to provide food, clothing, shelter, and a Christian environment where these kids can learn that they are loved by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, this church has a rich history of trying to make this community better. You may remember in 1969, some of y'all may have been here at that time, in 1969, a Sunday school class in our church, a young couple's class, had been studying uh, James, the epistle, and they wanted to put their faith into action. 
And they realized that within Amarillo, there was not a preschool for under-resourced families. And so they started the Opportunity School that continues to operate within the children's wing of our our building Monday through Friday, providing reduced-cost childcare for families who are unable to afford it otherwise. Even more recently, in uh, 2015, our church mobilized and also encouraging the other churches from the Four Amarillo Downtown Partnership, we helped uh, refurbish and furnish the gratitude apartments of the Downtown Women's Center, which is the apartments just, just west of us, uh, at r- just right across from our west parking lot, where women who are trying to overcome an addiction to drugs or alcohol are able to live in a safe environment, and their children are as well. And this has proven to be a great partnership as, as children from the Downtown Women's Center are now able to attend our preschool, the Opportunity School, so the kids can get a first-rate education. And of course, even more recently, our own Dr. Alan Keister had a vision for providing a free medical clinic to our community. And so he started to heal the city that operates out of the San Jacinto neighborhood today. It's as a church, we want to make things better. Amen? We're committed to doing it. But not just locally, but globally as well. If you think about the fact that in 2011, when we had the refurbishing campaign of this church, you may remember why we did that. Really what drove that was the fact that our boiler and chiller were from 1956, and it was going to blow any moment. We had to fix it, right? And so rather than just replacing the boiler and chiller, we, we soundproofed the fellowship center, which is right below us right now, and they've got worship going on downstairs as we're worshiping upstairs, and that way our, we don't hear, they don't hear the organ and we don't hear their drums, right? It's perfect. And we did that, but when we did that, we also tied an additional 10% of that campaign to help build a church in Bolivia, La Paz, Bolivia, where our missionary, Greg Hurst, is serving. In fact, as a church, we're committed to giving at least 10% of our operating budget every year to local and global missions. Currently, we give 12%. That has allowed us to go from sponsoring 12 missionaries globally to over 48 missionaries globally. Yes, we are called to be salt, salt that helps make things better. And we are called to be light. Listen again to what Jesus says. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now light in the Bible always represents truth and goodness. In the text that Lindsay read just a moment ago from Isaiah chapter 9 is, is a prophecy of how Jesus will come. Uh, those living in darkness will see a great light. Jesus will be born as the light of the world. In fact, in John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Just as the moon cannot generate light of its own, it simply reflects the light of the sun. So we are the light of the world only as far as we are reflecting the light of Christ, the true light who brings love and light and love to a fallen, broken, and dark world. So how is our light shining today? Are we like a crescent moon? Got a picture of a crescent moon. Got a little bit of light shining, but ah, sometimes there's a little bit of darkness. Maybe we're a half moon. Half the time we're good, half the time, ah, not so good. Or maybe we're a full moon that helps light up the entire sky. You know, it's interesting in this text, in the original Greek of Matthew 5, verse uh, 14, it says, you are the light of the world. The Greek word for world there is kosmos, 
we get the English word cosmos from cosmos. When you're away from the city lights at the middle of the night and you look up, you'll see the brilliant stars and the moon shining so, so brightly. I remember recently I was in Fort Davis, uh, which is where the McDonald Observatory is located, and we were away from the city lights. And as I would look up the sky, I would see all these brilliant stars shining and the moon shining brightly, lighting up the sky. We are called to be the light of the world, the cosmos. But our only hope of lighting up the cosmos is if we draw near the light of Christ. And the thing that can prevent our light from shining brightly is unconfessed, unrepentant sin. When we walk into the darkness of this world and we chase the idols of our culture, our light doesn't shine as brightly as it should. One of the things I love about being Presbyterian is that every time we gather together and worship, as we've done this morning, we have a time of confession, a, a prayer of confession, so that we might come clean before God and confess our sins, so that with a clear mind and a clear conscience, we might hear the word of God and seek to live according to it. Yes, we draw near to the light of Christ by spending time with Jesus, listening to his words. That's why we're inviting everyone to join us in this 30-day challenge to read through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, every day for 30 days. Now, a quick word here. If you've missed a day or two, it's okay. Just pick up and keep on reading. The idea is that you'll read through the Sermon on the Mount 30 times. But the idea is not to speed read it, but rather to read it, to meditate on what Jesus is saying, and even memorize the words of the Sermon on the Mount, phrases or verses that stand out to you. You'll find that they begin to shape your thinking, that your mind will be renewed through the powerful Word of God that brings light and brings love and brings truth. Yes, we are called to be a light to the whole world, not just here in the sanctuary as we gather together as the body of Christ. No, we're called to be light to the whole world, to, to go out, just as Jesus says, you don't light a lamp and then cover it with a basket. You light a lamp so that it might illuminate the whole house with the light, so that a city on a hill should shine throughout the countryside. Yes, we're called to be the kind of light that goes out into the whole world, not to hide that light, but allow that light, the light of God's love, to shine through us throughout the community of Amarillo, throughout the world. I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian during Nazi Germany who boldly spoke out against Hitler, and he wrote these words in The Cost of Discipleship. He says, a community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, at the great risk of his own life, who was ultimately martyred for his faith in Christ, spoke out against what Hitler was doing to the Jews. He was willing to be a bold witness. Do we have that same kind of courage? Are we going to be a bold witness for the love of Christ? Are we going to point others to the good news? Are we going to be the kind of people who, who make things better, who boldly speak out for justice and truth and mercy? who seek to be instruments of God's grace and love, who allow our light to shine brightly. You know, I began this sermon by pointing out that whenever someone dies, a loved one passes away, we, we think about their life. We talk with other family members about their life and what they accomplished and what they did. And we, we talk about, you know, what was their purpose? What was it that motivated them while they were here on this earth? I remember a few years ago having that conversation about my own dad when he died in 2018. As we were sitting around talking about my, my father, we, we talked about the fact that my dad was a, the drama director at my high school for 30 years. He was the drama director at Midland Lee High School in Midland, Texas. And my dad had a real ministry in the drama department. 
First off, his ministry began because he only chose plays that were morally appropriate for high school students. There are a lot of plays out there that are not morally appropriate. But my dad would only choose plays that were morally appropriate. It had some kind of moral message. I remember my senior year for the one-act play, we did A Man for All Seasons, which is the true story of Thomas uh, More, who stood up to Henry VIII, who was trying to uh, force Thomas More to give him an annulment of his marriage. He said, no, you're married, you need to stay married. He took a stand, Thomas More did, at the cost of his own life. He, he did all of those kinds of plays, but not only did he try to select certain types of plays that had a good moral message, but he also would reach out to those students who had lost their niche in high school, who had lost their way. I remember specifically I had a classmate who was a really good football player. He was a really strong guy, but he had a severe shoulder injury that made he could never play football again. Without football, he wasn't sure what he was going to do. But my dad knew about his injury and reached out to me and said, hey, I need a really big guy in my next play. Would you be in our next play? I'd love for you to try out for this play. And so he did. He proved to be a pretty good actor. I remember there was a young girl who's two years younger than me uh, when she was uh, in middle school as a freshman and as a sophomore in high school. She was a cheerleader, cheerleader in middle school, cheerleader in freshman, sophomore years of JV. But then she headed into her junior year, she didn't make the cheerleading squad. She was cut, and we were all kind of surprised by that. She didn't make the squad, and, and she kind of had a crisis of identity. She says, she's, I've been a cheerleader my whole life. What, what am I going to do now? My dad reached out to her and said, you know, I need a young woman to be in our play who can, who can actually, be, she was my daughter in A Man for All Seasons. I was Thomas More, and she was my daughter. I need someone who looks a little bit younger than Howard. Would you be willing to be in a play? She won an award for that play. She was an award-winning actress in that one-act play. She was a great actress. My dad's ministry was basically living out the Sermon on the Mount, trying to treat others the way that he would like to be treated. You see, Jesus tells us to do the kind of works. What kind of works is he talking about? Uh, he says in Matthew 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in, who is in heaven. What are these good works that Jesus is talking about? Well, as you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that these good works are that we're the kind of people who love. Don't get angry. We're the kind of people who, who pray for enemies and pray for those who persecute us, who are willing to turn the other cheek when others insult us. We're the kind of people who go the extra mile. We're the kind of people who ultimately live out the golden rule of treating others the way that we would like to be treated. You see, in my dad's life, he'd had moments where he'd, he'd been rejected. He knew the pain of that. But he also knew the joy of being invited to participate. And so he invited other students who had lost their way, who'd lost their niche to, to participate in what he was doing, to encourage them with the love of Jesus Christ. How are you, how are we, being a light in our place of work, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our social circles? How is the love of Christ shining through us so that others can see our good works and give glory to our Father who's in heaven? I think that God wants us all to live out that golden rule, to put the needs of others before our own so the light of Christ might shine brightly through us. But what's the key to becoming the kind of person who, who naturally lives out the golden rule, who can see the need of another and naturally you want to meet that need, who, who's naturally merciful, as Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. How are we to become the kind of people who naturally live out the Sermon on the Mount, who naturally reflect the love of Christ? Well, I think the key thing we can do is we can meditate on this, the cross of Christ. For the cross of Christ Jesus practices what he preached. Jesus, who was without sin, 
put the needs of others before our own and, and died on a cross. If you may remember the story, as he's hanging on the cross, he prays for those who, soldiers who are mocking him and those who are chastising him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus turned the other cheek when people were slapping him. Jesus loved them and, and offered nothing but grace and forgiveness to them. And he offers the same grace and forgiveness to all of us. If Jesus is willing to love us in spite of all of our sin, shouldn't we be willing to love others with the same unconditional sacrificial love that we've received from Christ? It's the key to becoming the kind of people who are salt, who help preserve God's original intention for creation, who help resist the moral decay of humanity. The key to becoming the kind of people who are are light, who allow the light of Christ to shine brightly through us, is to meditate on the cross of Christ, where the love of God was made most clearly known, where we could see that God doesn't just love us this much, He loves us this much. And there's no greater love than the love of Christ. How will our light, the light of Christ's love, shine through us this week? Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, for this beautiful sermon that Jesus preached to a crowd of people who had been rejected, rejected by the religious elite in Jerusalem because they were, had been demon-possessed or had epileptic seizures or had some kind of disease. And everyone thought that the disease was because of their sin. But the truth is we're all sinners in need of your grace. So God, in gratitude for your grace, I pray that we might humbly walk with you in such a way that we are salt, that we make things better, that we help prevent the moral decay of humanity, that we seek to get it back to the way it was in the garden. And I pray, Lord, that you might use us to be light, a light of your love, so that others will see our good works and give praises to you, our Father who's in heaven. Help each one of us this week discover how we can be salt and light where you've placed us. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.